The Christmas story is the best story in the world, and it starts once upon a time. Well, there was this angel, his name was Gabriel, and he came to Mary and said, um, don't be afraid of me. He told um, Mary that um, she was going to have a baby named Jesus. And um, that he's going to be um, God's son. But Mary said that she wasn't married yet. And Gabriel also told Joseph that in his dreams. Her best friend that was engaged, they, um, he called the engagement off. And then he called the engagement back on after he heard about that. And Caesar the king, I think he was. He said, I'm going to count all the people, so go back where you lived. So they went to Abraham. No, wait, it was Bethlehem. And they rode on a donkey. Soon they went to Bethlehem for the census, and she needed a, a good place for baby Jesus to be born. Well, first they went to other houses and they said, no, I don't have any room. And they didn't have like a good place to go. So they, but then they went to an, a house and then the guy said, yeah, you can come in. I have a barn in the back of my house. They had to go into the stable because the hotels were filled with people. And the stable were all sheep, hay, horses, donkeys, pigs, and other animals were. And so when she had her baby, she wrapped him up in cloth, and then they put the baby in hay. God wanted to tell everyone about, about the miracle. So they, he sent in a choir of angels to tell the, to tell the three shepherds that they came. Gabriel said to the shepherds that there's a new king in town and there's gonna and we're gonna have a really good king and then the shepherds ran really fast to see the good news. Well they shouted at people that there was good news about the baby. And then there are these wise men in the east. The um, angels told wise men that t they would see a star when Jesus was born and they would follow the star to Jesus, the brightest star in the sky. But that one was God with only one angel. And the wise men have been waiting all the, like a really, really long time to see him. It took many months and a, and a very long time for them to get to see baby Jesus. They were just in time and after the, whenever they got there, they each bring one gift. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after they gave them the gifts, they all worshipped him and they were happy because they saw baby Jesus. They they were happy um that they got to meet the um king of the world.
Yeah, wasn't that good? Hey, Merry Christmas. So glad that you are here. If you're here at the Klein campus, Center Court East or Center Court West, or upstairs in the loft, welcome. If you're at our Woodlands campus today, welcome there. Or if you're worshiping online with us from somewhere near or somewhere far, welcome as well. We're so glad that you're here today on this Christmas Eve service. So many times I say on a Christmas Eve or an Easter sort of occasion, what I want to say right now, and that is I'm aware of something. And I just want to kind of get it out in the open so that we can all be aware that I'm aware and we're all aware. And, and that is, I'm, I'm aware that there's any number of you who are here today, n- not because you really get so excited about God and Jesus and the Bible and church, and but mostly because you just wanted to make your spouse happy or your kids happy or your parents happy or your neighbor happy. And, and I understand that. And, but deep down you're, you're thinking to yourself, let's just get through this church part so that we can get onto the food and the presence and the good stuff, right? Okay. And I'm aware of that. And I'm also aware that there's probably some of you here who, um, if you were honest, you would say, truth of the matter is I'm, I'm really not a church person. And I'm almost feeling a little awkward being here because if somebody who knew me really well saw me here, they might say, whoa, he or she is really trying to pretend to be somebody that they're really not. If that's you, I just want to say, relax. Because as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me this. 100% of us, all of us, are pretenders. Beneath the surface, all of us are pretenders. Some of us pretend to be richer than we really are. Some of us pretend to be a little more in need than we really are. Some of us pretend to be kinder and friendlier than we really are. Some of us pretend to be less lustful or more moral than we really are. Some of us pretend to be more spiritual than we really are. And so I think it's safe to say all of us want to come across as having it all together. But the truth is, beneath the surface, all of us are pretenders. I was thinking about this just the other day when we were looking through the Christmas cards. Suzanne, my wife, she loves when the Christmas cards come every night and we look at all the photos. And I found myself looking at some of the cards and thinking to myself, I wonder what's really going on in your family behind the smiles on this photo that you sent to us. And even as I was having that thought, it occurred to me, wait a second, the Whirline sent out a card, and I know what went on to get that photo with all of the hollering and sitting down and arguing, and I want to be here and smile now just so that we could get this result for everybody. So I think it's safe to say I know even personally what it feels like to be a little bit of a pretender. All of us, we are that. Deep down, we know that we're not really all of who we wish that we were. We're mere shadows of what we really wish that we were, and we're mere shadows of what God wishes that we really were, the Bible says. But we try to come off as having it all together, at least a little bit better than the people kind of near us. Sort of like the little boy I heard about who wrote a letter, and it said, Dear Santa, in our home, there's three boys. Jeffrey is two, and David is five, and Norman is seven. Jeffrey's good some of the time, and David's good some of the time, but Norman is good all of the time. Then he wrote, I am Norman. And I think 
All of us would like to think we are Norman, but the truth is none of us are Norman. In fact, much of the Bible, the first part of the Bible at least, it's called the Old Testament. That's the portion that was written before Jesus came into the world. Pretty much the whole Old Testament is, is filled with commandments, 10 commandments and more commandments and laws and things like that, which um, sometimes people think, well, could anybody ever do all of these things right? I can't get it all right. What they don't realize is that God's intention in giving us the Old Testament was never that any of us would be able to hit the mark and do all of those things, but rather his purpose in giving us the Old Testament was to awaken us to our need for something more, for something better than that, a savior who would come and rescue us when we can't do it ourselves. And that's what the New Testament is about, the savior, Jesus Christ, who comes into this world. Now today, we're gonna to read uh, right the very first verses in Matthew. That's the very start of the New Testament. So it's kind of like the bridge verses going from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And if you would like to follow along, you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter one. Take the Bibles. Uh, the ushers are passing some out right now. You just wave at them in any of our rooms and they'll be glad to let you borrow one and you can follow along um, as we go into the New Testament. I'll start in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Now, I know some of you right now, you're thinking to yourself, see, this is why I don't bother reading the Bible, and for that matter, going to church. Well, stick with me just for a few minutes, all right? Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So now you're thinking, could you just get to the point about the shepherds and the angels and the heavenly host and all that part? And, well, see, that part doesn't come in Matthew. That actually, that part of the story that we saw in the video, that was given to us by another man whose name was Luke. And we're not reading Luke's account this year. Sorry, maybe next year. So this year we're looking at, at, at Matthew. Okay, <clears throat> and the interesting thing about Matthew is that he introduces the story of Jesus by giving us all these names that we tend to just skip over. And you're thinking right now, I wish you'd have kind of skipped over it as well. But I'll tell you why I'm not skipping over it. Because recently I came to an appreciation that I don't think I'd ever had of the relevancy for this list of names. And I want you to understand it before we leave here today as well. Now, what you have to understand is that Matthew, as he was writing this biography about Jesus, he understood plenty well what biographers know, and that is, you know, let's, if, if you want the book to sell, why don't you accentuate the good parts of the story and let's leave some of the skeletons in the closet. But that's not what Matthew does. He brings all the skeletons out. He puts it all into the story here in Matthew chapter 1. Look at the names in the list. I'd call to your attention Jacob. We read his name. You know who Jacob was? Jacob was a swindler and a cheater. Cheated his brother. He, he was a duplicitous fella. 
You say, well, so what? What's that have to do with me? Well, I don't know. But I just have a sneaking suspicion that some of you, maybe you've cheated before yourself. Maybe you cheated when you were in school. Maybe you're cheating your way through school right now. Or maybe you cheated on a marriage, on your spouse. Or maybe you cheated with an IRS return or an expense uh, account at work. And if so, when you read the name Jacob in this list, you should say, I'm glad he got included in the list because I'm kind of like Jacob myself. And then you look at Jacob's son, Judah. You know who he was? He was a cold-hearted hypocrite and and the worst kind of adulterer. And so are some of you. In fact, if you are, would you just raise your... No, not really. But but (laughs) you know who you are. And because that, you should be glad that Judah is in the list because you're a lot like Judah. Oh, you pretend that you're not, but you really are a lot like Judah. And then you get to Tamar in verse 3. She disguised herself as a prostitute and then had relations with her father-in-law. You're like, oh my gosh, this is sort of R-rated. Well, it is. And that's why you probably never heard that story in Sunday school when you were growing up. We tend to sort of circumvent that story and just move right past those uh, kind of aspects of it. Then there's Rahab in verse 6. You know, Rahab was, she, she didn't just dress like a prostitute, she was a prostitute. And then there's Solomon. Solomon had more than 700 wives. Can you imagine? 700 wives and 300 concubines, which really makes you wonder why one of his good friends maybe didn't come up alongside him, maybe right about after the 150 wife and say, you know, Solomon, we think we're seeing a little pattern here in your life. We need to have an honest talk about this. And then there's Solomon's father, and his name was David. But notice that Matthew doesn't write David, the man who slayed Goliath. He didn't write it that way. He doesn't say David, the man who wrote many of the Psalms in our Bible. He didn't write it that way. He said, and then there was David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. And see, David had had an affair with her, which brought about the birth of Solomon. And through the course of all of that, David had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed to try to cover up his stain. So why mention all these people on Christmas Eve? Why did Matthew mention all these names? Well, I agree with Kyle Eidelman that the, that, the, that the realization has to be made. The explanation for this comes from Matthew chapter 9. Now, we're not going to turn there and read from there. I'll just summarize for you what happens in Matthew chapter 9. But suffice it to say that we learn in chapter 9 of Matthew that Matthew, before he ever became one of the 12 disciples, he was a very different person. We tend to forget that all of the 12 disciples were very different people before they became 12 disciples. They hadn't always been enshrined in the stained glass windows around the world. They started out as very, very ordinary people. That's how Matthew's life started out. We know to his Jewish parents, Matthew would have been a major disappointment. He would have been a source of great heartache and heartbreak to his parents. How do we know this? We know this because there's another name that Matthew has in the Bible. He also went by the name Levi. 
And any parents who named their son Levi had hopes and aspirations that something great spiritually would happen to their son that they were naming Levi, that maybe they would become spiritual leaders like the Levites in the Old Testament, that they would come, become great spiritual leaders of, within the whole nation of Israel. But that's not what happened to Levi. It would be sort, sort of like, uh, you know, sometimes you, 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 people today even name their children names that, well, they just carry with them great anticipations, like a boy named Peyton Manning Murphy. Really? So, Dad, you're wanting a quarterback, eh? You know? Or Billy Graham Gallagher. Oh, Mom, you, you're hoping he turns into a preacher, an evangelist, huh? See, special names like that carry these, these hopes and these dreams and these expectations. And so when his parents named him Levi, you know that they were hoping he was going to be something great. Levi, Matthew, he did not become something great. He became something terrible. In the, in, the, in the Jewish culture, he became about the worst thing you could become, and that was a tax collector. You see, well, what was so wrong with being a tax collector? Well, here's how the system, here's how the system worked. See, Israel was part of the whole Roman Empire. The whole Mediterranean world was in this time of history. And the way that the, Ro the, the system of government worked is that the Roman government would try to get Jewish um, uh, men who would serve as their tax collectors in regions that maybe they were familiar with. Why? Well, they'd grown up in the area. They knew kind of how much you make, and I know how much you're worth, and I know what you have. And so they would know roughly how much they could extract from the people. And so what would happen, you see, is the Roman government was essentially saying to a Jewish tax collector, we want you to sell your soul to our government, which means you're going to betray your friends. And here's the way it would work. The, the, the Roman government would say, okay, so you need to collect this much. If we give you this region and you'll be the tax collector, you, you, you owe us this much at the end of tax season. But anything over that that you collect, we'll just consider your commission. And so tax collectors were notoriously rich, but not for the most noble of reasons. And that's why in the Bible, tax collectors were despised. Jewish people hated them, didn't talk to them, but just outcasts. Matthew was a tax collector. Perhaps you've also heard of another tax collector in the New Testament. His name was Zacchaeus. These guys were shunned, put out. And so when you come to the story in Matthew 9 of Jesus coming along, the last person that you expect, he would walk up to and say, I want you to come into my circle is a tax collector named Matthew. And yet that's exactly what happened. Jesus walks straight over to Matthew, but he, he didn't berate him. He didn't condemn him. He talked to him and he gave him a simple invitation. He said, Matthew, follow me. Leave this life that you've been living and follow me. I think this is gonna get us to the nub of why Matthew 
saw fit to include all these names of other pretenders in his list leading up to Jesus. I think it's because he felt connected to any number of those names that he was writing about from the Old Testament times that he was putting into that list. I think it's because he was trying to communicate to us, not just here's the sort of people that Jesus came from, but here's the sort of people that Jesus came for as he was leading into the story. It was as if Matthew was saying, hey, I know what it feels like to be an outcast to have messed up, to have become an embarrassment to your parents and and to be despised by society. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be on the outside of the circle, but I also know what it feels like to have a savior who steps over and says, I want you to come into the circle. I know what it feels like also to be forgiven, to receive amazing grace, to, to, to get so much more and so much better than I ever deserved. When I think about getting so much more and so much better than I ever deserved, I personally can't help but think back to something that happened to me back in January. I've told the story several times around here, um, but several thousand of you weren't here to hear it, so I just hit the high points. <laughs> because I think it illustrates perfectly receiving so much more and so much better than you ever deserved. So back on January 14th, I was downtown in the medical center and I was making a pastoral visit and I was walking through the hallway and, and <clears throat> um, upon the completion of visiting the family that I was visiting, I, I felt the sensation of indigestion. And I don't have time to tell you the series of no less than nine or 10 providential serendipities that happened in the next couple of hours. But suffice it to say, I found myself two or three hours later seated in a chair on the 30th floor of 6400 Fannin Street, looking into the eyes of a cardiologist named Dr. Stuart Solomon, who was looking into my eyes saying, Mr. Wordline, you may have indigestion but that is not the greatest of your problems. I am so sorry to have to tell you this. You have terrible damage. The stress test that, you're, that you just failed and the high ST elevation that it showed reveals to us your body is actively trying to have a heart attack right now. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and I think it's gonna happen in the next 24 hours. And instantly, I'm thinking, oh my God, is happening and I'm thinking of my wife I'm thinking of my boys I'm thinking how in the world did did this happen how am I here but in a moment where he gave me so much more and so much better than I ever deserved Dr. Solomon didn't say so good luck with that you can pay the receptionist on your on your way out he said we've got to get to the hospital right now he's thinking out loud he said if I call an ambulance put you in the ambulance. They'll have to take you to ER. They'll meet you there. That takes an hour. That takes two hours. I need you faster. He looked at me and he said, do you mind if I drive you? I said, no. Uh, Thank you. And so he said, stand up and just walk with me. Walk slowly. So I walked slowly. He said, I'm going to take your briefcase from you. I said, I I think I can carry my... No, I don't want you to carry your briefcase. I said, okay. So he took my bag of books. 
We got to the elevator. He presses the button. We ride down on the elevator. The door opens. We're in the parking garage. Right there is his Lexus. He chirps open the doors of his Lexus. He says, now I want you to slide in to this passenger seat. Don't bounce in. Just slide in gently. I said, okay. I got in. He walked around. He drove us out of that garage, out on a fan, and, and three blocks down to the hospital and wheels into a parking place and grabs a nearby wheelchair, and he walks the wheelchair over to me at the, at the passenger door, and he says, now just slide in easy to the chair. I'm going to push. I said, Dr. Solomon, I appreciate this, but I, I really, I think I can walk. He said, no, you can't walk. I don't want you to walk. You don't understand how sick you are. He said, I'll push. I said, yes, sir. So I got in the chair. He pushed me over the overpass and into the hospital and up to the 10th floor of Dunn Tower. And the nurses jump off when we get off the elevator and they come running towards me and, and him. And he says, I need him ready as fast as you can get him down there. And he walked off. And the next thing I knew, I was changed and I was rolling down on a gurney through the corridors and through these doors. And I remember seeing him in a mask and all the scrubs and about three or four or five other people right with them. And last thing I remember him saying is, let's get to work. And they did get to work. And he found that my LAD artery was 99.9% blocked. And he would tell Suzanne, my wife, later that evening, you were about within 12 hours of that LAD the artery, the widow maker making a widow out of you. Now, for obvious reasons, that day has become the defining moment of 2015 in my life because that was the day that God used Dr. Solomon to save my earthly life. That was the day that he, he did something and nudged Dr. Solomon to call his wife and cancel their evening plans and, and that he might <clears throat> rescue my earthly life. He gave me so much more and so much better than I'd ever deserved. Heck, I hadn't even, we hadn't known each other for more than an hour or two. And there he is driving. Do you mind if I drive? And, and who ever heard of a doctor that did that and says, I'll push the wheelchair and you sit there and you don't understand how sick you are. Why did he do that? He did that because he understood I was careening my way towards a massive heart attack. And so in essence, he said, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm going to rescue you. Whoever heard of a doctor? Whoever did that? Ah, but whoever heard of a God who looked down upon his human creation and said, not, try harder, do better, fulfill some more of these commandments, but instead looked down upon his human creation, upon you and upon me and said, You'll never be able to get it all right. You'll never be able to rescue yourself. You can't save yourself. You're not good enough. So I'm going to do what you could never do for yourself. I'm going to intervene, and I'm going to save you myself. And that's why he sent his son to this earth, to be our savior. And so he comes into this earth as a little baby. But he didn't say a baby. He grew up until his 33rd year, living a sinless life all of those years, spotless, unlike any of us, so that he could be qualified to stand in our place as our substitute for our sins. 
And he essentially said, I'll trade places with you. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. I'm going to take the hit for your sins so that you don't have to pay the consequence for your sins yourself. And he went to the cross and he died for our sins. And then on that third day, he rose from the dead, conquered the grave, and says to anybody now who puts their trust in me, who surrenders their life to me, who says, I'll trade my life for you. Jesus, you come into my life and take over. He says, I can give you life everlasting, life abundant. But there's one requirement, he says. You get in the chair. I'll push. This is the interesting thing about Christianity. Really, when you compare it against every other major world religion, and they're all, most of them are very interesting and have some interesting things, and many of you maybe like to do comparative studies. And, but one of the things that you'll find, the big thing that you'll find, is that Christianity is distinct from every other major world religion. Because all of the other religions say, here's what you need to do. Here's the hoops you need to jump through. Here's the hurdles you need to jump over. Here's an eightfold path. Here's five pillars. Here's 10 commandments. Measure up. Do better. Try harder. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get your way worked back into God's good favor and blessing, but there's no guarantees. Good luck on that. That's what all major world religions say, not Christianity. Christianity is about the one true God of heaven and earth who looked down upon us and says, you can't save yourself, so I'm going to rescue you myself. I'm sending a savior to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Now, get in the chair. I'll push. And that's Christianity. You say, well, so how does one become a follower of Jesus Christ? How does the transaction of, of sort of making that trade, my life for his life, how does that occur? It happens in the prayer realm. Just in a moment of humility, when you say, Lord Jesus, I want for that good news to apply not just for other people, but I want to receive that gift myself. I want to trade my life for your life. I want you to come flowing into my life. Rescue me, save me, forgive me, cleanse me, repurpose me, turn me around. I'm asking you to come into my life today. You do that in the prayer realm. And my hope is that even today on this Christmas Eve of 2015, you might open up your soul if you've never done that before and that you would let him pour his amazing grace into your soul. The way that hundreds of us who are here have allowed him to do in our lives and thousands, millions of followers of Christ around the world have done in the same way that Matthew that day allowed Jesus to come and to pour his amazing saving grace into his soul. And bringing it full circle, I just have a sneaking suspicion if Matthew were still living today and right here, he would say the reason that I started the story with the list of all these names 
is because I wanted you to realize not only that I could fit into the list as well, but you'd fit just perfectly into the list too. So why don't you open your heart to Jesus this Christmas? We're going to come to the Lord's table for a few minutes of communing with him. Let me just remind you what it is that we're doing when we uh, come for this time. You see, that night before Jesus went to the cross to be the substitute for our sins, he took the bread when he was gathered with Matthew and the other 11. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. And I want this to symbolize, to represent for you What I'm doing for you tomorrow when I go to the cross, my body's going to be broken for your sins. So even several thousand years ago, we can access through this symbol the significance of what it is that he came to do, what his mission was to save us. And then he said, don't just take the bread, but then he gave meaning to the cup as well. He said, this represents my blood now, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. I want you to take it whenever you come together. So in just the next few minutes, in all of our rooms, at all of our campuses, we're gonna come to the Lord's table right now. Let me just give you a few housekeeping uh, thoughts. The first is this. Sometimes people, especially on a Christmas Eve, say, so I don't normally come here. I'm not a member here. I've never been here before. So like, can I come or can I not come? And the answer is you can absolutely come. It's not a faith bridge table. It's not our table, it's the Lord's table. And best we can tell from God's word, the only requirement is that you say, I love Jesus, or I'm ready to start today, and I want to learn more about what that means to let him live through me. So it's an open table. Practically, the way that you'll come in a few moments, the ushers will lead you in all of the rooms, and you'll come to one of the stations at the front, and you'll find a basket where there are gluten-free crackers at all the stations, and you'll take one of the crackers, and you'll dip it into the grape juice, and then you partake. And then you'll get a candle on your way back to your chair as well. Some of you would like to have some prayer time, even on the steps in this room and the front of other rooms, and you're welcome to kneel down by yourself or with your family and pray. And if you'd like for one of our prayer partners to come and to pray with you about something that's on your heart, you just whisper to them. They'll be uh, located uh, in the front and the back, and you just find one of them. Some of them, I think a lot of them have, have on red. They'll be happy to pray uh, with you according to your needs. And I'll just make one more request, and that is, as we're uh, doing this portion of the service and coming to the culminating point with the candle, I'll ask you to, uh, let's keep the, uh, the, the conversation, let's, let's not get chatting away. I know sometimes it's, it's easy when we're standing in the line coming forward, start saying, well, let's do this, and this afternoon we'll do this, and, this, and we start talking kind of loud, and it kind of distracts people who are really worshiping the Lord. So why don't we just keep those thoughts inside and keep our talking and communicating with the Lord in prayer during this portion. And um, I think that's all the things that I needed uh, to say. So why don't I pray? Lord, thank you for the good news of Christmas, that you would see fit to send us a Savior who would give us so much more and so much better than we ever deserved. 
Thanks for each person who's here, Lord, today. My prayer is that even in these quiet moments, those who are here who've never said yes to you, Jesus, in the first place, that they might say, I want to make that exchange. I want to make that trade. It's a trade up. I want to turn in, trade in my life for Jesus' life living inside of me. Even in this moment, you can make that decision right now. You just tell him quietly in your own heart, Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my heart tonight to forgive me, to cleanse me, to repurpose my life in the same way that you did Matthew's life. You just tell him that silently right now. Others of you are here and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've, I remember when I trusted in Christ. Maybe it was here. Maybe it was on a retreat. Maybe it was as a kid or on a young life camp or something along the way. And, but you're also thinking, boy, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then. And maybe the decision that he's inviting you to make tonight is why don't you come back? Why don't you turn around why don't you let me refill you with my Holy Spirit and move back into the fold of the faithful and open your life up to community and small group and God's word and growing. Perhaps that's the commitment you need to make right now. Why don't you just tell him that yourself silently? Well, Lord, there's so many people here, and all of us are somewhere on the continuum, but none of us are exactly in the same spot. All of us are carrying um, questions in our minds and burdens in our souls and things that have to do with our families or things that have to do with economy and things that have to do with safety and fear and anxiety and just all sorts of things. Lord, my prayer is that even in these moments of communing with you, as we sing the Christmas carols together, Lord, would you just minister to each of us, speak your word of reassurance, of hope, of life into each of us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.